the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic's Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, Just a reminder, this is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. Uh, Alan Dempsey, he does our engineering, does it well. And uh, Andrew Herdliska produces the show for us. Uh, Oz Guinness is back with us, former visiting fellow at the Brookings Institution, senior fellow at the East-West Institute. His latest book is out, Last Call for Liberty. Uh, Greetings, Oz. How are you? I'm well, Pat. It's a delight to be on your program again. Tell me about this book. What prompted it? Well, it's it's on the present crisis. You know, I read a book earlier on sustainable freedom, but in the debate that followed that, I realized a lot of Americans never really asked what freedom actually is. And my view is that while everyone recognizes there's a very deep crisis at the moment, a lot of people don't go deep enough in their explanation of what actually is behind the crisis. Some people say, just another episode of left against right, or is the coastals, New York, California, against the heartlanders. Or, you know, the current one, Pat, people are saying it's nationalists against the globalists, people like George Soros. And I don't think any of those get down to the real problem. And I argue the real problem is those who understand America, and especially freedom, in the light of the American Revolution, which was decisively biblical. And those who understand America and freedom it actually, often without realizing it, in the light of the French Revolution and its ideas. And they are very different, and they come out in very different directions. So that's the, the heart of the book, trying to look at the analysis of what's gone wrong. The book consists of 10 questions, Oz, interesting questions, powerful questions. So let's get started. Question one, do you know where your freedom came from? Uh, Fill us in. Well, the book is a checklist of questions, and I'm challenging Americans to have a kind of national town hall debate or a great conversation and to really ask, you know, where are we? Who do we think we are? Especially, how do we understand freedom? And I start with that one because there's incredible confusion today. Uh, Most Americans probably, if tested, would say freedom came from Athens. And we got it from our Athenian democracy. But that, that simply isn't so. And what many people don't realize, and what many Christians don't realize, is that actually American freedom came from Exodus. The story of the Exodus is the master story of Western freedom. Everyone knows Moses' famous words, let my people go. But far more than the rhetoric of those words is behind it, because 
The Catholic Church in the medieval centuries copied Roman structures, hierarchical, based on power. And it was a Catholic layman, Lord Acton, who made the famous remark, all power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The Reformation rejected that because of corruptions and things like the Inquisition, and went back to Exodus, and the notion of freedom, and the notion of covenant. And many Americans don't actually know that the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, 1787, comes directly, it's a national, somewhat secularized form of Hebrew covenant. That actually is the roots of freedom. And the reason that's important is because you think of democracy. Democracy has zero social content. All it says is who's supposed to be the rulers, us. And that's a, a dubious proposition today. But covenantalism or constitutionalism, you know, with things like love your neighbor as yourself at the heart of it, is rich in meaning. So that chapter goes back and says to Americans, do you realize, realize where your freedom actually comes from? Let's move to question two. Are there enough Americans who care about freedom? What do you teach us there, Oz? <laughs> that one, you know, freedom, words, the positive F words like freedom, faith, family, they sort of roll off the tongue as if they're easy and self-evident. But freedom isn't. And we can never leave it as a cliche, and especially because we've got ideas which are very, very different from the famous founders' ideas. And if we just let them go, they're going to undermine freedom. So I'm challenging people to really think you care enough to think about what you're saying and to think about what you think it's meaning and so on. Because, you know, a lot of Americans have become very complacent. Freedom is freedom is freedom. And it's, it will surely last forever. We're the most powerful nation on earth and we're free and so on. But that simply isn't true because free societies are very rare and they never, ever last forever. And so you've got to have vigilance to look out for the State of the Union, and that's incredibly important today. Partly the complacency and partly the incessant conflicts now we have between left and right means that we've got to really think about where we are and the state of freedom today. Oz, I want to move to question three. What do you mean by freedom? Uh, fill us in. Well, that's a tricky one, which people need to ask, because, as I said earlier, the famous saying by Gertrude Stein, a rose is a rose is a rose. In other words, some things just are what they are, simply and straightforwardly. But that's not true of freedom. And there are very, very different views of freedom. I mean, Abraham Lincoln said in the 1850s, everyone is talking about freedom, but the North means one thing and the South means another, and they're quite different. Now, the same is happening today, although it's not north against south. But take, for example, one of the most famous descriptions of freedom is by the Jewish philosopher Isaiah Berlin, who said that freedom is both negative and positive. Negative freedom is freedom from. All freedom has to start with the removal of whatever constrains you or coerces you or controls you from the outside. If you're under the control of a bully or a colonial oppressor or a sexual aggressor, you're not free. And equally, 
someone is under the control of drugs or pornography or uh, alcoholic addiction is not free. So negative freedom is freedom from, and freedom always starts with negative freedom. But that's only half of freedom. And Berlin said you have the positive side of freedom, which is freedom for, freedom to be. So you can be liberated, but never have liberty. And as the rabbis point out in, in, in Exodus, it took God one day to get Israel out of Egypt, but it took the Lord 40 years and counting to get Egypt out of Israel. Mm. And they kept hankering about going back and worshiping the gods of Egypt and so on and so on. And so liberty is much, much more than liberation. And, and you know, the basic distinction of, of freedom, is it the permission to do what you like, or is it the power to do what you ought? Christian freedom, Jewish freedom, biblical freedom is the second, the power to do what you ought. It requires truth. Jesus says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Whereas much modern freedom, say libertarianism, just do what you like permission to do what you like, but that, of course, leads to chaos, which undermines freedom. So we've got to get people to really start thinking about freedom. It's much more challenging and demanding than people realize. Our guest is Oz Guinness, Dr. Oz Guinness. Interesting background, born in China, educated in England, author of more than 30 books. He is a frequent speaker and, uh, Always fun to catch up with him. He lives in North Virginia, McLean. Oz, when we come back, uh, I want you to get into question four. Uh, we're going to take a break here on the station. Have you faced up to the central paradox of freedom? Just a I'm reminder, uh, you're listening to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. We gather like this every weekend. And we're always joined by really interesting guests, many of them authors, uh, who have particular topics that they write about, and uh, then they have a chance to uh, share with us uh, what their thoughts are. And uh, Oz Guinness has been with us a number of times, and it's always a, a real joy to have him with us. Uh, we'll be right back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's 94.9 FM. And AM 950, The Word, right here in Orlando, Florida. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Dr. Oz Guinness is our guest. Uh, Oz, question four. Have you faced up to the central paradox of freedom? Tell well, us that's a, a challenging uh, question, which uh, many Americans never even raised. You know, if you go to the Korean War Memorial here in Washington, there's the inspiring line, which a lot of people ponder, freedom is not free. Now, that, of course, is brief and inspiring and poignant. And it, it speaks to those who paid what Abraham Lincoln called the last full measure of their devotion and dying for their country. But the paradox of freedom is much darker than that. And people don't, they, they don't often think about it, which is the simple fact the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. Mm. 
if you take the history of freedom and put the whole of human civilization, say, pack it into one hour, free societies only come in in the last few minutes, and they never, ever last very long. Why? Well, freedom becomes permissiveness, becomes license, and then becomes anarchy, which undermines itself and produces the opposite, tyranny. Or freedom-loving people, they want to be safe. They want to be secure. So they surround themselves with so much safety and security, one nation under surveillance, that they're no longer free. Or again, you see that freedom-loving people, they'll do anything to fight for freedom because they love it, including things that actually contradict freedom. So they undermine it. So there are a whole number of ways in which you can see this paradox that the greatest enemy of freedom is freedom. Now, for example, one of the deepest roots is all freedom requires restraint of some sort. Freedom requires a framework. So when freedom, when the, the best type of restraint is self-restraint, because people who are self-governing are independent and they're truly free. But that's the sort of restraint that is easily undermined when freedom flourishes and then self-restraint goes. And you can see that since the 1960s in this country and freedom is a kind of anything goes idea, you know, with transgender people saying how you feel today, even flouting biology and science, if you feel it that way, and so on. So there are all sorts of things to face up to because freedom is very challenging. It's rather like, Pat, you're a great sportsman. You, you think of, say, piano playing or ballet dancing or, or the greatness in basketball takes discipline and practice and mastery of a skill or an art. And freedom's the same. It's not just allowing kids to do whatever they like or adults to do whatever they like. It, it, it requires discipline and training and mastery if we really have a freedom that stays free. As we move now to question five, how do you plan to sustain freedom, you write? Well, I hinted at that one. And the reason behind that is anyone who looks back over the history of Western freedom, right back to the Greeks and the Romans, the English and so on, you can see there are three parts to freedom politically. You've got to win freedom. And, of course, here is the revolution, 1776, throwing off those dreadful Brits. Winning freedom. The second task was ordering freedom, giving it a political and moral framework in which it can flourish. Now, the French and the Russians and the Chinese didn't manage that. They won freedom in their revolutions. They never ordered it. The genius of the American Revolution is that they ordered their freedom. That's not the revolution, but the Constitution. But the third part is sustaining freedom. Notice, how do you keep it going? And that's not the work of a few days or even a few years or decades. That's the work of centuries, and that's the hard one. And, of course, 230-odd years on beyond the revolution, that's our task today. But most Americans don't even think about it. And yet the framers did. They were aware that certain things undermine freedom, passing of time and so on. You remember the famous remark of Ben Franklin came out of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, and a lady asked him what they'd achieved. It was secret, of course. And he said, a republic, madam, if you can keep it, if you can keep it. Well, that's the task of sustaining freedom. Now, the framers had a system. They didn't give it a name. I call it the golden triangle of freedom. 
I think I've discussed it in your program before. But the, the, the trouble is today, the present generation either neglects it, they're not interested in history, or they openly reject the framers altogether, but they haven't put an alternative system in its place. So the simple fact is that modern American freedom, libertarianism and so on, isn't sustainable. And with these alien ideas coming from the French Revolution coming in, American freedom is really at a very challenging moment. And the issue of how do we sustain freedom is incredibly urgent, and very few people are thinking about it, sadly. Oz Guinness is with us. Uh, his new book, Last Call for Liberty. Uh, question six, Oz. How will you make the world safe for diversity? Uh, tell us about that one. Well, that's a crucial one, and all of us are people of faith. That's incredibly important. There's, there's no secret that there's been an explosion of what's called pluralization. In other words, a rapid expansion of diversity in the last 50 years right across the world. Travel, the media, uh, migration, scholarship. You know, it's now said everyone is now everywhere. And so the question is, how do we live with these incredible differences when the deepest differences of all are usually religious and ideological? Well, there's no answer to that except for the establishment of freedom of conscience, freedom of religion and conscience. And America's always done that wonderfully, not perfectly, but better than any other diverse society in history until the last 20 years. And you can see in the last 20 years, there's a sea change rejecting religious freedom. I call it the three dark R's. You've got the reducers who said religious freedom is no longer free exercise, as James Madison put it in the First Amendment. It is just freedom of worship. That's not true. Freedom of worship is whatever you believe between your two ears, as long as your mouth is firmly shut and you stay in your own home. That's not free exercise. The second bad R are the reducers. I mean, sorry, the removers. Those who say religious freedom is freedom from religion, let's get the messy business out of public life. And the third one is a really dangerous one. I call them the rebranders. Religious freedom is no longer the first liberty, as the framers called it. It's now seen as a code word for bigotry and discrimination. And that's the change that came in in the Obama years by various LBGTQ activists and so on who really saw religious liberty as something that would be used against them. But put those three things together, you've had this incredible sea change in the last 20 years, and religious freedom's gone from its prime place as one of the great human rights to something highly dubious and under assault in many campuses and in many other parts of America. And that would be an incredible change for the American Republic and for history. Oz, question seven. How do you justify your vision of a free and open society? Uh, I'm all ears on that one. That's a tough one today because, you know, the European practice was to have an established church whether it was Catholic in, say, Italy and Spain and France and Portugal, or Protestant in England, Scotland, uh, Wales, and so on. In other words, you established a religion and all was well. But 
the First Amendment went a different way. It disestablished religion, and as you and I know well, religion flourished, not despite disestablishment, but because of it. It was voluntary, based on the dictates of conscience. Terrific. But then, how do you have the grounding of society, especially if our secularist friends are trying to drive religion out of public life altogether? And so the way I put it is the American experiment is what George Washington called an experiment. Experiments are open-ended. There's a gamble. There's a wager. And the way I put it is this. The Republic, the American Republic, relies on ultimate faith because that's what gives us a ground for the beliefs we need for freedom, such as human dignity, because we're made in the image of God. The Republic relies on ultimate faith, but it rejects any official statement of what those faiths are. So there's no established religion there. The Christian faith was the majority faith of those who founded the country, still the majority faith is behind the ideas that made America, but the Christian faith was never the established religion of America. Now that means, of course, the Republic rises and falls, flourishes or declines, depending on the vitality of those voluntary faiths and their power in public life. And you can see today that with the attempts to remove religion from public life, you know, that whole issue has become highly controversial. Well, if the Christian faith becomes a cut flower faith in America, the roots are cut, not allowed in public life anymore, the Republic will suffer because there's no grounding for things like human dignity and so on. So it's an incredibly important question and highly controversial today. Now, Oz, let's get to question eight. Where do you ground your faith in human freedom? Well, this is that another highly controversial one, but I will state simply and bluntly, you know, people take freedom for granted. Oh, surely everyone believes in freedom. They don't. If we go back to the Old Testament, the nations surrounding Israel all were deterministic. The, the Egyptians, the Babylonians, later the Greeks. For the Greeks, behind everything, even above the gods, was fate. And so everything was determined by your fate. Even the gods couldn't change that. Well, you think today we're free. Well, look at our atheist friends, our secularist friends. There is no great secularist thinker who has a solid philosophical grounding for freedom. You look at the famous ones, Karl Marx, Benozza, B.F. Skinner, you move right down to the current new atheist, say Sam Harris, the cover of his book on freedom is of a puppet dangling from strings, because we are determined. It might be economic determinism or genetic determinism or biological determinism, but Sam Harris says bluntly, Freedom is a fiction. Freedom is an illusion. We believe it, but it's not actually true. Now, that's incredible, because it undermines everything, including, say, legal notions of responsibility. Where does freedom come from? The Bible. In other words, you have in the Bible a sovereign God. God is free, and he calls free people to worship him freely, and while the Lord is sovereign. We are made in his image and likeness. We're not sovereign, but we are significant. So we're influenced by all sorts of things, biology, our generation, our parents, whatever. But we're never, the circle is never closed. We are free 
we are responsible. And it's the biblical view of the grounding of freedom, which is unique and incredibly vital today, and a lot of people don't realize that. Atheists don't seem to realize it, and Christians don't realize how unique, Jews and Christians don't realize how unique their position is. Question nine, are you vigilant about the institutions crucial to freedom, a republic or a democracy? Well, we take freedom for granted, and many people have said, as I said earlier, that it comes from Athens. You know, so when the Arab Spring broke out, the notion of freedom and democracy was sweeping the world, but freedom and democracy don't always go hand in hand. Freedom's under assault, so also is democracy. So you just take one of the ideas. The framers rejected direct democracy, the Greek notion. They, they went for the English version of representative democracy. But at the time of the revolution, there were three million Americans. Obviously, they couldn't all come to Washington and debate and vote. That was ridiculous. So they sent representatives. But you had to choose the representatives. And the question is, were the people wise enough to choose their representatives well? Well, in the 19th century, it was thought, if we expand the franchise, so the vote goes out wider and wider, and we have more and more people, we better expand public education. Because only with public education could citizens be rendered wise enough to make the choices of the good representatives. Our guest has been Oz Guinness, right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, the book, Last Call for Liberty. We've got more after this right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Oz Guinness, our guest in that first segment, talking about his book, Last Call for Liberty. Peter Greer is with us. He's in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, president and CEO of Hope International and uh, co-author of a very interesting book, Rooting for Rivals. Peter, welcome. Good to talk to you again. Great to be on. Thanks for having me. Uh, what's that title mean, Rooting for Rivals? What What's the mission here? Yeah, you know, several years ago, there was uh, a foundation executive and I was meeting with him, and he talked about how he had three different organizations that were involved in a similar sector of Bible translation come to him and ask for funding for translating the Bible into the same language for the same people group. And uh, it doesn't it doesn't take uh, someone with you know a huge understanding of each of the organizations to realize that this was a lot of redundancy. And instead of even being aware that there were other groups working on similar projects, they were each working in their isolated little areas. And the end result was that there was not collaboration, there was not partnership, and it was not having the impact. And so they brought the groups together, and that started a series of conversations. And and simply by sharing information, simply by seeing each other, not as the competitors, but as friends, as partners, not as rivals, but as individuals that can do more together than they could do alone, they ended up 
moving the pace of progress. Instead of having the Bible translated into every language by the year 2150, they're now on track to have that done by the year 2033. So they took 117 years off the pace of progress simply because they said we're not actually competitors and we can do more together. And so that's really the message, rooting for rivals, refusing to identify other groups, other organizations as primarily our rivals, and instead identify areas for partnership, collaboration, and generosity, believing we could do so much more if that was our default posture and position. Peter, there are 11 interesting chapters in your book. The first one, Our Uncommon Unity. Uh, What are you writing there? You know, right now, uh, it's no secret that we live at a time of incredible division. Division in our country, division in our world, division in our families, even division and in our churches. And and we believe that it's possible to rediscover uh, that, yes, we can have uh, differences, but there there is an uncommon unity. When people look at us, wouldn't it be great if with a backdrop of division they saw something different? And the, the, the stats about trust uh, in the Church right now, there is less and less trust. And I believe part of the reason for that is because they look uh, at the church and they don't see any difference in how we treat each other. In a divided world, they don't see an uncommon unity. And uh, I just believe that for, for those of us that believe we're, the gonna, we're going to be together for all eternity, it's a pretty great time to maybe start getting along now and uh, rediscovering our uncommon unity, our shared mission, and going after some of the biggest problems that we don't have to agree on everything, but we can agree on a small subset, perhaps, of issues that we can tackle together and show uh, collaboration and generosity, what it looks like uh, when we when we have a posture of partnership instead of rivalry. Peter, uh, the topic next, kingdom over clan, uh, what does that mean? Yeah, so just maybe taking uh, half a step back is the way that we went about researching this this topic was similar to what Jim Collins does in Good to Great, in that we identified sector experts and then asked them, who are the most open-handed, generous, uh, collaborative leaders that you know? And some names kept coming up and up, and then we spent hours and hours interviewing them and and trying to learn about the way that they, they think and act differently. And we found that they answered two questions differently from everyone else. And the two questions that they had clarity about was, do I believe that my calling is to promote an organizational agenda, my little club, or do I believe that I have a higher calling that supersedes an organizational agenda and is about a kingdom agenda? And we found that consistently they said that, you know, I have a calling that goes beyond the logo that's on my business card. And so just real concretely, when I was in uh, coming back from a conference, uh, Wes Stafford, who was at the time the president of Compassion International, uh, he had no idea who I was, but um, I was doing some, some uh, thinking on, on uh, topics related to Mission Drift, and he was so gracious. Uh, even though he didn't really know who I was, as he heard more, he could have seen, well, this is someone working for another organization. This is a rival organization. But everything about him exuded grace. Everything in his response was, how can I help you? And it was almost as if him helping me was, was accomplishing his mission. And, and in a very real sense, that is true. If you believe that you have a mission 
that goes beyond the logo on your business card, then I believe uh, that is those types of leaders are going to have the most outsized impact on our world today. So that is one of the issues that the leaders that we found that were so collaborative, so generous, so open-handed, they believe that their primary calling was not just to an organization, but they really believed what Matthew 6.33 says, that we are to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and they had clarity about that point. I want you to talk about abundance over scarcity. Uh, What does that mean? Yeah, well, this was the second area that the the generous, open-handed leaders, the way they thought differently, perhaps, than the rest, is they believed in a world of abundance and not scarcity. And I think that's one of the great challenges for all of us, is do we believe in a world of abundance or scarcity? Because if we believe in a world of scarcity, then anytime someone else has a little bit more recognition or funding, that means there must be less for us. And and in a very real way, it's possible to feel that way with fundraising, with your goals and your targets, and to never feel like there's enough funding to go around. But I was talking to Melissa Russell, who heads up the International Justice Mission's uh, fundraising team, and uh, she told a story about how a friend had reached out to her when the ice bucket challenge was going crazy and everyone was kind of jumping in, and, and it was raising a huge amount of awareness and funding. And the friend, very good intention, said something uh, to the effect of, I wish all of this attention could be for you. And at that time, I think it would be real easy to, to kind of agree, yeah, I wish that could be for us. But Melissa doesn't believe in a world of scarcity. She believes in a world of abundance. And the focus and attention on, uh, on, on uh, ALS and the Ice Bucket Challenge she was able to not see that as threatening to mean there's less awareness, but actually to celebrate this outpouring of generosity and to look at it through the lens of a parent who maybe has a child uh, that is suffering with that and to imagine what it would be like at this moment to have all of the spotlight on that. And, and she was able to enter into the celebration of that instead of feeling threatened by it. And the belief that she shared was, well, because I believe that five loaves and two fish are always enough uh, when when uh, when Jesus is involved. And there was this clarity that she just did not believe in a world of scarcity, but she believed in a world of abundance. And just one quick note on that is, you know, historically in the U.S., giving has been static at 2% of GDP year after year after year after year. So if we're going to be focused on something, why don't we focus not on a very small piece of the pie, but but what if we made a larger argument for why that 2%, why there's an opportunity to do a whole lot more good if that were three? So instead of seeing it as limited funds, what if we could truly believe that there's enough and that there is uh, an opportunity for more? It would free us from trying to fight over a very small, small piece of the pie. It's time now to move into this section, how we root for rivals. And the first topic, seven vices versus seven virtues. Uh, explain that to us, Peter. Yeah, and I, I, you're asking all of these great questions. I, I want to hear your perspective on, on this and the idea of, of competition and, and when it is healthy and when it is unhealthy. I don't know if I'm allowed to do that in our conversation, but I want to hear your perspective on some of these topics. <laughs> 
But um, yeah, I mean, the, the second kind of section of the book, it, it goes into, so intuitively this makes sense, that we can accomplish more together, and that of course it makes sense for nonprofits to find areas of collaboration. Of course it makes sense. And yet the reality is it's not happening very often. It, it is the rare exception uh, instead of the normative approach that organizations look at each other with a spirit of open-handed generosity to each other. And so we try to understand, so what inhibits that? What inhibits our ability to truly be open-handed and generous? What stops us from rooting for our rivals? What stops us from being known as a unified people? And it was really nothing new under the sun that was discovered with that. We ended up uh, realizing that what was written about by um, by, by individuals known as the Desert Fathers years and years ago, the seven deadly sins is how they're known today, but that those oftentimes uh, became uh, issues and became a framework that we could try to unpack what is it in our hearts that stops us from being uh, collaborative, uh, generous with others. How can we see that inside us, and then what can we do to have a different approach, uh, a more um, yeah, well, simply a better approach in, in how we think about doing this work uh, together. Peter Greer is with us from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Pride versus humility, Peter. Uh, interesting topic. What do you write there? Yeah, well, again, nothing kind of new under the sun, right? But this, this oftentimes is seen as if all of the other vices are the branches of a tree, uh, pride. Uh, is known as the tree trunk. Um, and, you know, I think about early on in my time with Hope, um, I remember being at a, at a conference and, and um, uh, kind of hearing about this incredible growth of another organization. And um, there was a speaker that was going to, uh, was, was giving this very compelling talk. And I remember just thinking down, thinking, oh, how are people going to look at me? <laughs> Um, and, and what was the problem with that was my, I was unable uh, to celebrate what was happening in another organization. I was unable to enter into this really in compelling story and good news. Why? Because the focus was on myself as opposed to others. And I think about another time at Hope, you know, having the growth chart of our organization compared to the growth of all these other organizations and what what a dangerous activity that is when we believe that the, 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 the way that we look at others, that's how we're going to find how well we're doing. Uh, that just is, is, is pride at the very core. And yet with nonprofits, I believe that's, uh, that's, that's, that's the default position. So you think about something like uh, Giving Tuesday and all of this attention uh, for so many organizations. If we're not careful, we can try to posture well, let me tell you why supporting this group is better than all of these other groups. Or let me tell you how, how we are doing the real transformative work. And I believe that sort of an approach that says we must be better than you, that sort of an approach undermines our shared mission and our shared credibility. And so part of what we are trying to do is just to say, what if, what if we could simply not look at it through the lens of just an organization-centric viewpoint, but what if we could have some, some shared vision, some bigger dreams, some bigger purposes, and refuse to 
kind of promote ourselves, make us feel really good, fill us with with a greater sense of pride, um, and to do so by thinking we have to tear down others. Uh, that sort of an approach uh, means that we are all all going to lose. My guest is Peter Greer, president and CEO of Hope International. Uh, the book is called Rooting for Rivals, uh, a very interesting approach, and uh, we're so glad that Peter can join us. And uh, we got another segment with Peter, so stay with us. Just a reminder, uh, we gather like this every weekend. The show is called the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And, of course, you're listening to 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. And the philosophy here is very simple. Faith comes by hearing. And so we're grateful that you're here, grateful that you're hearing us. And uh, you're going to be hearing more with our guest, Peter Greer. But first, these messages right here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay with us. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Peter Greer uh, has uh, written the book Rooting for Rivals. Peter, there's some really... uh, interesting topics. I want to get into them here. Uh, The next one is greed versus generosity. Uh, Tell us what you're writing there. Nonprofit uh, leaders uh, as necessarily greedy. Why? I certainly hope that individuals don't uh, initially associate that, but yet we can uh, have have an attitude of of greed. Anytime that we are focused on uh, just what is in, what is in it for us, and so I think about a quote by Ray Kroc, and Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, he talked about if any of his competitors were drowning, that he would stick a hose in their mouth and turn on the water. Mm. And then he goes on to say that this is rat eat rat, dog eat dog. You're talking about the American way of survival of the fittest. And as crazy as that might sound, uh, uh, and even within a business context, I believe that it's possible to have that exist. Um, but even with business, there are other individuals that say, you know, not everything is a win-lose proposition. Not everything means that if I win, it must necessarily come at the expense of you losing. And I think of someone like uh, Robert Mondavi, uh, who um, was in Napa Valley, but mm-hmm. he had a vineyard, and his purpose was not just to create a company, but he was trying to figure out how can we put a region on the map and so one of the things that he did is after he would tour uh, in Europe and, and learn new tools and techniques, he would open up uh, his books, he would open up and share what he was learning with others. And the end result is it wasn't just a company that he built, but he put an entire region on the map. And if that is true for a vineyard, imagine, imagine if we would be known as people that are extraordinarily generous with each other, not saying I've got to hold on to everything that I have with a, with a white-knuckled, uh, tight-fisted approach. But what if we could simply be, be open? And just one concrete way that that has changed what we do is we, we, we've made everything open source and really trying to model some of the things from other incredibly open-handed leaders who said everything that we have, if, 
if our ultimate goal is not to build an organization, but to to create uh, the most innovative, the best work that we possibly can as a shared uh, sector, why would we want everyone to replicate things? And and so uh, there are several uh, organizations uh, that said everything we have is open source. So before creating an employee manual, uh, here, take ours and just copy, replace the name of the organization with yours and have that be a starting point. Or here's our training manual. Or here's here's the way that we think about board governance. And anything that we have, if it could be helpful to you, we would be honored to share it. And so that's sort of an approach. It, it kind of keeps greed in check, and it allows us to be more generous with each other and allows us to have a far greater impact in a shorter amount of time than we could if we were all trying to do things in our own isolated and individual way. Now, Peter, we've arrived at gluttony versus temperance. Uh, where does that fit in this book? Yeah, so uh, it's, it's uh, gluttony in the way that we're uh, defining it here is an insatiable appetite for more. And I think about uh, uh, my colleague Chris and, and uh, the story that he shares about uh, in organization well, um, a, a time when a supporter reached out and said, uh, hey, uh, Chris, we have some extra funds. We'd love to give them at the uh, year end. And and at that point, it was near the end of the year, and Chris knew that, uh, that, that uh, he was going to hit the fundraising budget for that year. And so his initial response uh, was, well, let me tell you, next year is going to be a lean year, I'm sure, let me tell you how we can put these funds to good work. But the supporter was really asking, do you have any unmet needs for this year? And so uh, Chris's eventual response was, you know what? Thanks to God's incredible grace, uh, we have enough for this year. And here are some other organizations that are doing great work um, in case you would like uh, to support them. Now, this supporter said in all of his years of philanthropy, he had never had any organization say, you know what, we have enough for what God has called us to do for this year. And that sort of an approach, that is only possible when we uh, believe uh, in this idea of, of temperance, perhaps, that maybe there is such a thing as enough for what God wants uh, us to do. So is it an insatiable desire for more and more that never ends? Or is it possible that at some point we could say, you know what, we have what we need, and let me let me share uh, that with, with others? And now <clears throat> let's move to the next interesting uh, proposition here, lust versus love. Tell us about it. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're just... Uh, Getting all of the, the, the good ones. And again, all of these are, are being applied at an organizational level. Uh, so our hope is that these are applied at a level of, of, of uh, church um, uh, organizations. Um, and there's been a lot that has been written on these topics at a very personal application. But we're, we're trying to look at it specifically through the lens of how does this inhibit uh, relationships? Uh, how does this inhibit organizational collaboration and generosity? And so at its core, what, what is lust? But it is using other individuals. It, it's, it's treating them uh, not as individuals um, uh, apart from uh, what they can do for you. And, 
And so one of the ways that we see this applied at an organizational level is thinking about staffing. Um, how do we see our staff? And, and in a, a counter approach to the rooting for rivals idea, that would mean that we uh, see our employees for what they do while they're in the organization. And if they ever, if they ever try to figure out how they could go somewhere else or do something else, uh, there, we're going to create obstacles. We're going to figure out how they can not go to our competitors. But I believe a different approach is if we believe that we are involved in stewardship, we are investing in, in employees, we are investing in our team, but it is not a failure. It, it has the possibility to be a success when there are individuals sent out and going to other organizations and involved in launching other ventures. And so instead of just looking at individuals through the lens of, and what can you do for me, it allows us even to look at employees to say, and what is going to be best for the kingdom? And to, again, the, the whole piece of, do we have uh, hands that are clenched or do we have hands that are open? And in, in thinking about this subject, I am thoroughly convinced that it is a far better way to live. It is a more kingdom uh, centered approach to live with our hands wide open. And so that includes even the way that we think about uh, everything from, from employee engagement to, to uh, support uh, from, from donors to the way that we think about plans that extend beyond the borders of our organization. And increasingly, I just I, I want to be part of a movement of people that say we are people of open hands uh, and, and uh, don't look at life primarily through the lens of, of ourselves at the center. Peter Greer is with us, uh, the book Rooting for Rivals. Peter, tell us about envy versus contentment. Yeah, and, you know, a, a lot of these uh, things that we look at, there, there was this wonderful way in terms of uh, initially starting by identifying the problem, but then also looking internally and saying, well, where are these attitudes or habits? Where are they alive in our own hearts as well? And so I think about uh, envy. Early on with my time at Hope International, I remember uh, hearing uh, the story of another group. It was a younger group uh, that was also involved in, in microenterprise development and microfinance, and, and they got to be featured on Oprah. And they were having this massive, massive growth and I remember my attitude. I, I was doing everything possible to share the message of, of hope and the work that we were doing uh, around the world in a very similar place. And I was having a hard time uh, <laughs> seeming to get any traction talking about the way the church could engage in, in this way of poverty alleviation. And so here are similar people doing similar work, and they're on Oprah and uh, at that moment, uh, why was I starting to feel the way I was? Why was I starting to feel uh, almost resentful of their success, even though this was having a massive uh, positive impact by introducing more and more people to the tools that we were using? And we were actually partnering with this group, and so their success was, it, it even was good for us. My guest has been Peter Greer, author of Rooting for Rivals. We've got to wrap up after this on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. <clears throat> this is 94.9 FM and AM 950, The Word in Orlando. 
More of the Pat Williams Power Hour in just a moment on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour on 94.9 FM and AM 950. The Word. Now, once again, here's Pat. Folks, thanks for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Oz Guinness was our guest in the first section talking about his book, Last Call for Liberty. And then Peter Greer plugged in uh, from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Rooting for Rivals, uh, his latest work. Uh, Please visit my website. It's patwilliams.com. Uh, the Twitter page is Orlando Magic Pat. And uh, <clears throat> the book I want you to check out is uh, Coach Wooden's Forgotten Teams, a book I wrote about uh, the great John Wooden and his summer camps and what we can learn about his approach and how he taught and how he coached. I think you'll enjoy it. Go up to Amazon. Always a wonderful way to order books. Uh, in the meantime, uh, a very belated Happy New Year to you. A wonderful year ahead, and we'll be with you next week for more on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour right here on 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word in Orlando. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at the same time where faith comes by hearing 94.9 FM and AM 950 The Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.